Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Hi, so what we're going to do in this time together is, um, in one sense, it's not the most like, exciting breakout session you could have gone to with your life. I hate to break it to you. If you're like, oh, I'll go to the resurrection of that other one, you, you, it's going to be a toss-up at the end. All right? I know that. All right? so, I know that. I'm aware. But uh, it's, I hope that by the end you can see why it actually still is like, really super important, though. All right, and it's, it's important for us if we're going to actually have faith in the 21st century to know some of this. All right, so this will be very important. But let's begin with this. Someone comes up to you. They don't really know Christianity that well. And they hear the word resurrection. They say, what is the resurrection? What is that? What's your answer? What do you tell them? What is the resurrection? Anyone? Shout it out nice loud. This guy came back from the dead one time. This guy came back from the dead one time. Yeah, great. This guy, I like it. So someone came back from the dead one time. Good. What else? Would anyone want to elaborate on the, uh, the uh, casualness of it all? Yeah. God sent his son to save us all. Great. Very, very good. All right. So we got, we got the basic idea. Jesus, there's a guy named Jesus. He rises from the dead. Right? That's a basic thing. Here's what gets weird for everyone who's not a Christian. Are you ready? This is what they do. They say, I passed by a lot of funeral homes. So what, what's that all about? That becomes their problem. And it's a very legitimate thing. You're like, so are we just really happy for Jesus? Like, yay, he, he rose. Like, what, what does it all mean? So these are some of the things like, yeah, I don't, yeah, okay, good point. I mean, I, there's a lot of funeral homes and there's a lot of cemeteries. You think all of those would have went out of business if a guy rose from the dead. So what's going on? So we'll get to that. Here's another question. What's it mean? So Jesus, 2,000 years ago, rises from the dead What's it mean? What are some of the things it might mean? You, no right or wrong. Not like a religion teacher. So you can just shout out whatever you want. What's it mean? All right, he conquered death. All right, great. Whoever said that, nicely done. And then once again, we get back to the question of like, for himself, for us, we have funeral homes. We go to funerals. Maybe some of you have buried some loved ones. And yet we say he conquered death. So we still get sad. There's grief. What are we supposed to do with all this? But yes, he, the claim is he conquers death. What else does him rising from the dead mean? Good. Gives the ability for everlasting life. Great. That's a really good one, right? So if Jesus, now who's alive, can never die again, now there's a chance of not just everlasting death, which was always there. Now there's something called everlasting life, because if we see it in one human being, it might be possible for others. So, okay, interesting. There might be something more here now. A new hope is dawning on humanity. Nice. What else does his rising from the dead mean? A covenant fulfilled. fulfilled. Good. So if you're steeped in biblical theology, this is good news. Because there was eventually going to be a time where God made a covenant or fulfilled a promise that would be an everlasting promise. That he would act not just from God down towards us, but on our behalf, he would be able to fulfill this relationship because God was always faithful and we are not always faithful. But if someone on our behalf could always say yes, that'd be good news. So very good. What else? Rising from the dead. What else does it mean? Great. Great. What, what, is, what about sin? Freedom. Freedom from sin. Yes. And then we sin. Right? So it's this weird thing. This is what I mean by being a believer. Okay. 
We have slogans that we were taught and they're things we memorize and you're going to get A plus on theology tests. And to be honest, as a priest, I'm not as interested on the theology test as I am with people living. And so like he conquered sin, sin, Satan and everlasting death. Jesus destroyed them all. And yet people die. We sin and we feel tempted by Satan. So it's like, well, what's, what's that? What, what did he do? Or as I put it last time, God entered the world at Christmas and he entered a world where there was things like abortion, divorce, famine, and war. And guess what? Here we are in this 2,000 years later and there's things like abortion, divorce, famine, and war. What the heck did this guy do? <laughs> what did he accomplish? See, now let me just pause for a minute. I do believe in Jesus. Before all of you like, I went to a breakout station, now I'm an atheist. No, I, I believe in Jesus. But these are very important questions because if you just are simplistic about your following of Jesus, in 1950, that might have worked. In the 21st century, it ain't going to last you very long because you're going to hit the real life pretty quickly and real problems are going to come at you and real questions. Here's some things that rising from the dead means. It means love, truth, forgiveness, they win. That in the end, all the injustices done against you, all the evil done in the world, it's not the last chapter of your life or humanity's. Jesus rising reveals the last chapter. That in the end, God, who is love, truth, forgiveness, mercy, he wins. And all those who are on that side of the story win. Even though we may have to go through a lot of suffering, even though we may get mocked and teased, even though we may lose friends and jobs at points, we win. That's one of the things it means. One of the most important things it means is Jesus is not like Abraham Lincoln. He didn't give us a teaching that we listened to, and he's back then. A Christian is not someone who believes in a teaching. A Christian is someone who was friends with Jesus Christ. And in order to be friends with Jesus Christ, it means I have to be able to encounter Jesus Christ, not in the first century, because I don't live then, but in the 21st century, because I live now. So if Jesus rose from the dead, it means he's not a back then, he's a right now. And he's alive now, and we can know him, see him, and love him, and he sees, knows, and loves us. We can encounter him. We can be with him. In fact, all the Gospels are, are stories of encounters with Jesus that are captured and they're told to us so we can realize what it's like when we encounter Jesus. And guess what? We're just like the Gospels. Sometimes we love it when Jesus shows up in our lives. And we're like, oh, I love you. You're Lord. And other times we're like, crucify him. <laughs> I wish you wouldn't show up right now. Because I'm about to have to say and do something. And my friends are going to mock me. People are going to hate me. Or I'm going to sound real weird. And so Jesus still shows up. We can still have communion with him. Just like they could in the first century. Because he rose. He's not stuck back then. He's a right now. One of the greatest teachers and preachers of the faith is St. Paul. And the resurrection is such a crazy claim. It's the central claim. Do you want to know how crazy it is? How many of you just went to Father Pat Schultz's uh, transgender talk before this? A majority of you. Good. All right. Do you know what the catechism of the Catholic Church says about the resurrection? Catechism is the big old fat book that teaches what we believe all right, in a condensed form. And it says the most difficult truth that the church proclaims is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. 
Think about all the things we believe as Catholics in the 21st century that makes us feel like it's really hard to be Catholic. And the church is like, actually, the craziest thing we believe is Jesus rises from the dead with his body. That's the hardest belief we have to proclaim. And you're like, hmm, that feels weird. St. Paul knew this though, right? St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, if there's no resurrection, my preaching is useless. Our faith is in vain, meaning useless. And we are the most pathetic of people. Isn't that nice? <laughs> so if Jesus didn't rise, 1 Corinthians 13, his preaching is useless. Our faith is stupid or in vain or a waste of time. And we are the most pathetic or pitiable of creatures and people. Which means whatever went on in that resurrection, our whole life is staked on whether or not it happened. I'll put it, I'll translate it to 21st century uh, Diocese of Cleveland. Right? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you should have slept in today. Because <laughs> you're wasting a whole Saturday. This is prime weekend time. <laughs> if he didn't rise, you wasted your life today. You should have stayed home. But if he rose, you're doing the most meaningful thing you can. You're gathering with other people who believe him. Where two or more are gathered, he promises to be here. So you're gathering with him. You're being renewed in the scriptures, in the stories of salvation. You're growing in the teachings so you can be more at peace and confident in your faith. And you're going to be able to live it with more zeal, color, panache, and energy because you came today. And that is a smart choice. But if he didn't rise, you're very, very dumb. <laughs> So this is, what, this, is, this is what's at stake, right? So what we're going to do is I'm going to give some what's called evidence for the resurrection. And these have been around for about 100 or so years, most of these claims. And we're going to give, we're going to give the evidence. I'm going to talk a little bit, and then I'll do question and answers all right, at the end. So there's different ways of looking at evidence. Right? There's mathematical and scientific evidence right? that's like which you can demonstrate for people. So, for example, if a little five-year-old says, can you teach me how 2 plus 2 equals 4, how would you teach a little kid 2 plus 2 equals 4? How would you do it? What? 2 plus 2 equals 4. Okay, great. How else might you do it besides just telling them again? You might, like, take two of one object and, like, put them together with, like, two of another object. Right, yeah, you can demonstrate it. You take, you say, bring me some toys. You take two of their toys, you take two other of their toys, and you put them together, and you're just like, see, now you have four toys. Like, oh, I get it. You can demonstrate it. You show it. All right, that's really important because that's easy to do. But not everything in life falls into the scientific way of proving things. I love true crime TV shows. Right? Criminal Minds, Law and Order SVU. I'm binge watching those things and not planning my homilies real well, okay? But... Even true crime's even better. Not the crime, that's not the better part. <laughs> but watching how they investigate. And what they do is this. They can't do scientific two plus two equals four because you'd just be able to say very quickly, John did it, right? But what you gotta do is you have to say, okay, I have these pieces of evidence and then you start putting different narratives or theories and you try to see what's make, what makes the most sense based on the evidence. So, you have a guy named John. He was at Walmart at 2 in the morning. He lives next door to Susie who was murdered. And they also got in a fight the night before. The only evidence you have is a shoe print next to the dead body that matches a pair of shoes he has. 
He says he wasn't there. So if you look at the evidence, what story makes more sense? That he was there or not there? Well, based on the evidence, what makes more sense that he's there? We don't have two plus two kind of equals four type of certainty, but it's still a reasonable certainty. When you go into a courtroom, they say, is he guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? Not beyond a mathematical proving thing. There's a sense of reasonableness, common senseness that we deal with when we talk about these things. So, the disproving of the resurrection happens in two categories. The first one is this. Yeah, but what evidence do you even have? Right? This is if you ever go on TV, you see the History Channel, it's like, it says Jesus, like man or legend. And then it has a weird guy from a college campus in some sort of tweed jacket saying things that make no sense. And then you're like, well, I guess I don't believe anymore. And then the next woman they have on, she's like, well, it probably happened. And they, by the time you're done, you don't know what you're even supposed to believe, right? But this is what happens. One of the claims is this. Did he even die? One of the arguments against the resurrection is that Jesus didn't die on the cross. They took him down while he was almost dead. He got better, and then he just went about living his life off to the side, and that's why people saw him. And that's their claim. So we can't just be like, well, that's stupid. We believe he did die, so ha. Huh? <laughs> that's, that's not a good way to talk to people who don't believe. And we want everyone to know Jesus because we believe Jesus makes life more beautiful and meaningful and gives you the hope of everlasting life. So we have to find a way to talk with them that would allow some engagement, some dialogue. And this is what they don't realize, is that, I want to make sure I have the number, all right. There are over nine sources from around the first century that indicate two things. Both that there was a man named Jesus who died by Roman persecution, and that there were claims that that man rose from the dead and is seen. Why is this important? Because 2,000 years ago is a long time ago, all right? No microwaves even. Can you believe it? What kind, of, kind of barbaric world that they live in? Right? 2,000 years ago is a long time. So if you take the science all right, of history, so historians work by certain scientific procedures, and you use what they use for anything else, what you'll find is that if you can have textual evidence of something within a year or two of an event happening, that's incredibly important evidence. It's wildly reliable. And then if you can have more than one textual evidence that says the same thing and makes the same claims, the likelihood that this happened starts going through the roof. So we have nine different sources that claim, all within a year and a half of the event of the resurrection, that there is a man named Jesus, he was crucified, and that he rose from the dead. Some of these are scriptural, but some are not. Some are just historians that were alive at the time that were writing history and what was going on. And so this has become, these texts become amazingly uh, debated because there's so much power to them, right? So we weren't there 2,000 years ago, but we have these texts that indicate something happened and they're from different sources and they all seem to agree on the same proclamation or same claim. All right, There's a, so that's like the evidence or clue part of it. But the more convincing one for me is called the they're making it up argument, right? So same history channel, 
It usually happens on Easter and Christmas. The guy has more than one tweed jacket, so a different jacket, but same guy. Right? And this guy says, no, you know what it probably was is they were making it up. The early apostles realized they followed a loser because he lost, not because he's like, we don't like, oh, you're a loser, I don't like you. No, like he lost. He was put to death. They followed a loser and they're like, oh man, we gave up so much. What if we just told people we saw him back from the dead and then everyone's going to think, wow, and then we're yeah, come follow us and then this is going to be great. That's what the claim is, that they made it up. So here's the thing. If you're going to make up a story 2,000 years ago, you're going to want the best witnesses. Now, I'm not going to say that any of you have lied, but let's say if you did ever lie to a family member or a teacher like, or a priest, better not you, you are going to, uh, you're going to want to have like your ducks in a row. You're going to want to have this story solid. And you spend time thinking, well, if I tell them I was there at 10 p.m., there's no way they're going to know I wasn't. And I'll take a picture and post it over here so they think I was there. And it's going to be great. Like you have the whole thing mapped out. Well, 2,000 years ago, to have a woman be the first one to see the resurrection, really bad idea. Now, I'm not saying that offensively because it's not now. If we were saying that now, that would be offensive. 2,000 years ago, they had a different (laughs) view of women. But to have a woman 2,000 years ago be the one who's like, hey, he's back. And then your story is that she saw him, came and told the male leaders. They listened and then went and saw it for themselves. That was just, that would be seen as so stupid 2,000 years ago. Not only that, the woman you chose was the woman that you say in there, Mary, the first to see Jesus. She was the one where seven demons were cast out of her. You now chose an ex-possessed woman in a town that doesn't listen to women, in a time period that saw women as less, and you're going to have her out front as the main reason Jesus rose from the dead. Makes no sense unless it happened that way. Otherwise, that's a really dumb way to lie, right? Here's the second argument against they made it up. We have awareness that the followers of Jesus, after he dies, they're hiding. They're scared, and they're hiding in a room. And then pretty quickly, I mean like months, not even, like after he ri- they claim he rises from the dead, these same men, rather uneducated, uncultured fishermen, are now going out to the known world courageously and boldly telling everyone Jesus is in charge. The analogy would be something like this. Do you guys know of the phrase of a hillbilly? Okay, it's usually someone who might have lived in like the back hill country of like Virginia or Kentucky or West Virginia, right? They don't, they don't, they like live in the trailer that their grandparents lived in, their parents lived in. They never went to school. They have like maybe one good pair of jeans and a bunch of holes in it and barefoot. They have no good teeth and they don't ever, they don't ever know how to speak English that well. Imagine that person going to the Times Square in New York City and telling the mayor of New York, Jesus is the Lord and he rose from the dead. That's what it was seen like in the first century when you had fishermen from Galilee going to Rome, going all over the known world, preaching and teaching that God raised Jesus from the dead to say that everything he did and taught was God at work in the world. And now we have the only power that is stronger than sin, Satan and death. And he wants to be your friend. It made no sense that these men would have such courage and zeal unless a miraculous event actually happened that they encountered. And then here's the third one. 
Once again, if you've ever lied, you probably lied for a benefit, right? So for example, eight years old, your mom's like, did you do your homework? And you're like, yes, because you don't want to get in trouble. The benefit is you don't get spanked or put in time out, right? Good. That's why you lied. It was a benefit. You know, you lie to get something that's good in your life. If the apostles in the early church was lying about seeing Jesus risen from the dead, this is what happened to them. Their spouses and children were put to death in front of them. They were hunted down and arrested. They were stoned to death. They were thrown in arenas where lions ripped them apart and ate them. They were burned alive. And they were mocked and persecuted like crazy. So if you're going to lie that I saw Jesus rise from the dead, soon as that first rock hits my head, I'm like, never mind, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Right? We're like, I saw him, he rose from the dead. He's Lord, he's God, he's in charge. And they handcuff me and they unhandcuff me and I take the blindfold off and I'm looking at a lion. I would begin to say, oh no, never mind. I lied because I'm about to be murdered by a lion. But if it happened and you think through with and in Jesus, risen from the dead, is the hope for people to live for everlasting life and eternal joy we can never articulate, then you're like, no, this, ha- this is it. I know where I'm going. I know even if this lion kills me, that's just a chapter in the story. I'm about to see the glory of God, and I'm going to be a part of it. So these evidences get laid down, and we're detectives. And you look at all of these evidences, you look at all these things, and you begin to say, okay, there's two narratives that we're looking at. Either Jesus rose from the dead, and he's Lord, or he didn't. Now, we can't give people faith. Faith comes from God. All we do as disciples is we remove some of the confusion that they believe so that they're open to receive the gift. So we look at the evidence, we look at these two stories, and you begin to ask, which is more likely, based on all this evidence, that he rose, and all these things are why we can prove it, or that he didn't rise? And then people have to make that journey for themselves, right? You have to do that own journey for I can't make that journey for you. That's something you have to do as a person. But here's something that's even, I think, more convincing. I met a guy named John. He's 33 years old. He lives in Philadelphia. He played Division I rugby in college. Out of college, he had an awesome job. Right? He's living in a high-rise building in downtown Chicago, like glass all over, looking over the city of Chicago. And at like 25 years old. This kid's crushing it. Right? He's doing great in life. And he's looking out the window one night over the city of Chicago. And he hears what he later on realized was God, but he hears in his heart, I'm so glad you got all this, you're doing really good, but none of it's gonna make you happy. That freaked him out that he began to go on a bender, right? He began to drink. He began to hook up with every girl he could find. He began to do cocaine. He lost his job, lost his awesome condo, and he goes to move home. And as he gets home, his parents have family and friends there for an intervention to say, We think you're drinking too much. We're here to intervene. He goes, thank you so much, but it's not actually the drinking. You don't even know this. It's actually the cocaine. And they're like, oh, well, I guess we're still glad we're here. And um, they get him some help. He ends up going back to his childhood faith, which was Catholicism. He starts going to daily mass. When I got to know this guy, he was four years sober and said he was happier and more peaceful than he had ever been. And he says, I believe in the resurrection because I'm living it. 
See, the resurrection is you fully alive. When we see Jesus' death and resurrection, he didn't rise from the dead like decrepit. You know, like he rises with arthritis in a hip and he's got like a cane and he's like, well, at least I beat death. We're like, I don't know that I'd want to beat death. That that's what... He rises even more glorious than he was beforehand to say that when we die to sin, we die to loneliness, meaninglessness, confusion, and we open those parts of our lives to Jesus. He doesn't crush us or minimize our life. He enhances our life. John 10, 10, Jesus said, I came that you have life and have it to the full. This is what he means. I want to glorify you by name. St. Paul says, we are meant to shine like the stars in the sky. St. Irenaeus, a second century theologian, he started trying to say, what pleases God? What glorifies God? He said, what glorifies God is men and women fully alive. Which means in the resurrection, we realize when we grow closer to Jesus, life doesn't get less, it gets more. We don't become minimal or just coping with life. We become fully alive. And so the proof of the resurrection is also in the lives of the saints. Their capacity to love their enemies to forgive those who mocked them on social media, to not hold grudges and pray for people, to be generous to those in need. They have grown and they begun, their humanity speaks of a depth and a wisdom and a joy and a freedom and a confidence that makes no sense in this world apart from a God who dies and rises and offers us friendship with him. And so when you come here for a conference, when you come to any place where there's the church, what you come to do is meet Jesus Christ because he's alive. He's not dead. He's alive right now. Where is he? Where two or more are gathered in my name. He's among us. He's the thing in your heart propelling you to happiness, wanting more life, more joy, more friendship. He's the thing in you wanting reconciliation and healing in your family and in your schools. He's the thing that's longing to be seen, known, and loved and not ignored, mocked, and criticized. That's the force at work in this world. And then he's most fully present in physical ways, just like he was through the church. Right? He speaks through scriptures, but he's alive in the sacraments. So when you go to mass, you're not eating and drinking a ritual meal. You are actually digesting the resurrected Christ. And he's sharing with you his power and glory so that you, by name, can begin to taste the pledge of eternal life. This makes us fully alive to live with hope and peace. And then we become a part of the magnet that draws other men and women back so that they can know God and his plan for us, that we are all meant to become alive in Jesus. So what I want to do right now is I want to pause and I want to open it up for questions. Now, questions can be about what I've said. It could be about... Well, anything, and if I don't know, I'll just say I don't know. But uh, so anything you want to ask me, anything you want to ask about the church, anything you want to ask about, et cetera, et cetera. It's just a time for you guys to have with a priest to ask any questions you'd like. And I see a hand in the back here. Talk real loud because you got a mask, but go for it. Okay, so you have a thing where two or more Yep. Great question. I had someone ask me this a couple months ago, too. It's a great question. What Jesus is trying to say is this, is that, I have made you for community. 
right? So what he wants to tell you is, I am definitely there in community. Think about when Jesus lived. He was born into a family, into a community. He calls a community of 12 around them. He sends them out two by two. So his preferred way is community. That's why he gives a heightened teaching on that. However, we also see him say, when you're going to go pray, go by yourself into your inner room. And you, when you pray in secret, the Father who loves you will see you in secret. And so there's a real sense that when you're alone, Jesus also teaches you're with the Father. But he gives a pride of place to communal prayer to say you're not meant to do it alone. You can be alone and I'm with you, but you're not meant to do it alone. I'm going to raise up men and women to walk with you. So it becomes both. Yeah, follow up. Lepers or Lazarus? Correct. Lazarus and Jairus' daughter. But those are resuscitations, not resurrections. The difference being Lazarus and Jairus' daughter were brought back to the life they already were living. They're going to have to die again before they rise to eternal glory. Jesus' resurrection was also the transformation of his humanity. He became more glorified and alive through the death and resurrection. That's what you're baptized into. So already now you can become more alive and share in that, lack of a better term, escalator that's going to move you up towards the heavens. So that's a little difference. Questions? Right up front, John? Yeah, so I was wondering, like, the second anti-resurrection argument you made, um, like, it went, like, like, if they they were just making it up, uh, they wouldn't have all these, like, like, they wouldn't have a woman be the first one, and a woman who was previously possessed by demons. But, like, that, like, the argument I would make against that is, like, reverse psychology. Like, they're trying to get people to think that because this is such a stupid argument to make, that it's probably, like, it must be true. Right. So, in case you couldn't hear, John said, remember I said, like, you wouldn't have a woman who used to be possessed by demons? He said, well, he goes, what about, like, reverse psychology? Like, wouldn't you want to actually have the craziest version? Because that way then they would definitely believe because they'd think, why would you choose the weirdest one? You'll d- definitely probably happen, right? That would be true maybe among friends our age, why we would think that now. But to lie to the authorities back then meant murder and death. So you're putting a lot on the line for a hopeful trick of reverse psychology. You're like, I bet we're going to confuse them and they'll believe us because of this lie. But that means I'm going to murder your whole family. If you're lying. So it becomes a very risky gamble. So the question becomes, well, what's likely? Did they do this as a reverse psychology where the punishment could have been death and murder and they lose everything? Or did they do this because they really thought it happened this way or believe it happened this way and they were just saying how things happened? Also, they weren't the most creative group. <laughs> like nowhere in, the, nowhere in the scripture text do we see that the apostles were like out witty, like very like witty and creative. That's not anything in there. In fact, they were, if anything, like Peter, he wasn't witty at all. He wasn't good with poetry or analogies. He was like a straight shooting, like, I'll never let you die. Oh, I'm really scared. I don't, you can go ahead and die. Like he was just a very, like the very black and white kind of people. So that kind of advanced like wittiness thinking in the 21st century, we would do that often. Now, like as a joke, but they wouldn't have thought that because of so much on the line. Great question, John. Okay, we're inundated. I like that. Ladies first. Ladies first. Because it's not 2,000 years ago. Um, 
True. So I'll give you a, one of them now outside of Scripture, and I'll let you. So they were all written within the first couple, about a first hundred years or so. So from zero to 100. Mind you, the scriptures weren't written down, right, until about 34, 40. That was like the first text we have after Jesus' death. So 30, Jesus dies around 33 for lack of arguments, better, better arguments right now. And we have the first written text around 50. So the Bible's not even written. So that last 50 years, a lot was being written down. But one of them is by a guy named Josephus. You're really into this. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm loving this topic. All right. Good for you. Uh, but uh, I did this because they asked me to. Okay, but, uh, but if you really love it, it's a guy named Josephus. He was a Jewish historian, and all he, he was alive at that time. So he was just writing all the events that he saw going on in the first few centuries in the Middle East. And so Josephus has, is like one of the most authoritative historians about what went on in that time because he lets us know what was happening in the gospel time period in a text that's not a religious text, even though it was Jewish scholar and kind of was. More like a uh, eyewitness reporter for lack of what we would be closer to that, even that's still a little different. But yeah, so Josephus, and there's a couple other texts like that. For for example, Romans kept great documents of who they murdered through crucifixion. (laughs) Because if you want to have power in the world, you want to say, look at all these people we killed, you know? So there's some texts like that, Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, so there's things like this that we know he was alive and texts like that, so. A guy over here is him. Yes? I did three questions. Three, you get one, and then we'll come back, all right? Pick point, you got, you got the one yeah, picked up? Okay. Um, so in terms of addressing the Gnostic or atheist, when they ask for you know, a main argument for God, I would say the resurrection seems to be a little when you start off. So I always, I, I, I want to have a lot of these But you start with, is, is, you know, is there a God uh, not loving or anything? Is there a prime mover? Then is there a good God, and then resurrection, and then pick Catholicism on to be Christian? Would you say that's the path to go, or do you think you can convert someone purely on the resurrection? It's a great question. So if you didn't hear his question, he said, uh, if you're dealing with someone who's an atheist, it seems like a big move to begin with the resurrection. Shouldn't you back up and begin with, like, an existence of God or some being out there that we call God, and then from there get closer and closer to the resurrection? It's a great question. So I would first say, yeah, if you're going to go in logical order, no one cares if God rose someone from the dead if they don't think there's a God, right? So you got to start where things begin. But you want to be careful with atheists who you talk to, not because like they're dangerous people, no, but because a lot of times they're not denying the existence of a God. In their mind, what what they're denying is Jesus Christ and the God he revealed. That God is a loving father who knows you by name. So we spend a lot of time debating with atheists about like, no, there's a God. And at the end of the day, like, all right, fine. Yeah, I can believe that God exists, but I'm nowhere near closer to believing in the Christian understanding of God. So it's a catch. It's a, it's a difficult thing. What's pretty interesting to see is that if you look at someone like Bishop Robert Barron and the Word on Firework or Pints with Aquinas with Matt Fred, things like this, you have a lot of men and women who are converting to Catholicism, all right? based on watching their videos, reading their books. And it's not so much like, all right, I got the God argument down, then I watched videos on world religions, then I went to Catholicism. It's that they kept seeing over and over again men and women who believe but also think. Men and women say, I believe Jesus rose from the dead, but I also have some reasons. I've done some work, and these are some of the reasons that would help me believe it. Even though I believe it on faith because I trust the scriptures and God, 
I also have some reasons why I believe it. And when they begin to see consistently someone who has reasons that are thought out and weighed, it begins to soften them because like, oh, you guys aren't believing Jesus like we believe in Paul Bunyan and you dragged the axe and now we have, you know, Grand Canyon. You know, no, you, you believe this because you actually have thought through these things. It becomes really the witness of thinking Christians that softens their heart for the Holy Spirit to give them the gift of faith. So I would just say always keep that in mind that your witness and how you thought through these things can disarm them more than the actual, I beat you in that one argument, now you have to say there's a God. So that's kind of how I would go back and forth. So before I circle back, let me just see if there's other questions. Right back here. Okay, so can you kind of explain like how holy They're taking out, and they're like, man, this game of chess is taking forever. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. What, what church are you in? Oh, nice. All right. You tell Father Matt Courtney, okay? And Father John, you tell them to take you to a Byzantine Holy Saturday liturgy. It's awesome. In the Roman Rite, we don't have any liturgies on Holy Saturday except the Easter Vigil, which really is an Easter celebration. We have some morning prayers that are offered, but we kind of just sit in silence that day waiting to then celebrate the resurrection. But in the Orthodox Church and the Byzantine Church, they have these awesome, awesome liturgies. And what they do is they talk about Jesus descending into the dead and scouring the walls of hell. And what he's doing is he's pulling off the walls of the dead, the just souls that he will then gather in his arms and rise up with them. Now, because we don't have any revelation about what it actually looked like, there's a debate on what, how it looks when it actually happens. What we reveal to be believed is he goes down into the dead and he invites all the just souls that have been waiting for him to come back up with him so they can enter into the glory of heaven. Now, there's two beautiful things. Sometimes they say he descended down like a victor and he came down and was like, let's go. And they're like, Woo, finally, and they all come out. And there's something beautiful about honoring his strength, his mighty God. There's also another tradition that's really beautiful and it moves my heart which is that seeing a dead God who died out of love descend among them, they were moved and cut so deeply with how much they were loved by the Lord, and they embraced the corpse, like the dead of Jesus. They embraced him out of love and care because they were moved by the beauty of his love, and as they embraced him, they were taken up with him. So both are getting at the same thing, but kind of different imagery. Since none of us were in the dead on Holy Saturday, we kind of are left with this with kind of a mystical tradition about it. But it's the idea is that the just souls beforehand, they went up with him. And that's kind of Well, then I can't. Is it a follow up? OK, we can do a clarifier. <laughs> it was the first hologram. Right. What's your first name? 
Miles, so I'm going to tell you something, Miles. You asked the same question I asked in graduate studies at the seminary to our scripture professor, and he didn't have an answer for me. You asked the same question I did, is that if you don't go back, if you don't, first off, if you don't get your body back till the end, and none of the souls are released until Jesus dies, like, how do those two guys get there? So uh, I, mean, I asked the same question. There's not a lot of answers in the tradition about it. I would say a couple of things. One is, in most commentaries by saints on this, is that it's not so much the actual figures of Moses and Elijah as much as what they represented. Moses represents the sacred law, and Elijah represents the prophets. And so the law and the prophets all point to Jesus' death and resurrection. So the idea is that the whole tradition of Israel is leading there. That's kind of the, in the tradition of the church, that's the number one consistent teaching on that. They don't get into as much as were they actually there, although it says he talked with Moses and Elijah. It says it in the text. So I asked the same question. So I'll let you know what I don't know something and that I don't know because I asked the same question. So good question. Yes. All right. I have two And these were, we got two more questions. So you two. Yeah, so the idea here is that because he re- his, his transformed, glorified humanity was so different than the normal humanity we all have, it was unrecognizable for that reason because the transformation was so powerful of the resurrection that they didn't recognize him right away. Also, it's because uh, Pope Benedict says the gift of faith as well as the object of faith are both from God, meaning It says, and he appeared to his disciples. What it means is he enabled them to see him. It wasn't like this cup. Like, hey, everyone see this cup, and you can see it if you have eyeballs. Right? Great job. No, no, because that's natural vision. This had to be supernatural vision granted by Jesus. So he wasn't seen by all, right? And so because he wasn't seen by all, it's because he manifested himself, it even says in the scriptures, to those who were chosen beforehand by God. And so there's a real sense of both the ability to see as well as Jesus himself were both gifts from the Father. And that same thing's true in our life, right? Our gift in the Eucharist, right? The Eucharist is a gift from Jesus and our faith in the Eucharist, both are gifts from God that we cooperate with. We can't just be like, I'm going to believe now. It doesn't work that way. You know, there's, there's a cooperation and a daily practicing of faith over time until it gets into your bones.